Well, church, our passage today is Ephesians uh, 1, verses 15 to 19. Verses 15 to 19, I know the bulletin says up to 23, but uh, as I was working on it, didn't want to be here for two hours, so I chopped it in half, and I think it also makes sense textually, which we'll get to that later. So that's found on page 900 what of your, of your pew Bible? Someone shout it out. 976 of your pew Bible. Page 976 of your pew Bible. If you would follow along with me, I am going to read all, uh, all of it up through chapter, uh, verse 23, and then we'll pray. <clears throat> For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you are the head over all churches. You are the head of Warnell Road Baptist Church. You are our chief shepherd. You are our chief elder. And so we pray that we would learn from you today. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts. Where there is stony ground, God, we pray that you would break it up. Where there are Christians who are suffering, we pray that you would build them up. Use your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder how many of you have heard of J.I. Packer's book called Knowing God. I wonder how many of you have read Knowing God. Okay, I, I highly commend it to you. If you talk to anyone who's read it, they're probably, I'm going to guess, go on a limb here and say, it might be one of their top 10 to 15 Christian books of all time. It is a fabulous book. It is theology and a lot of theology applied. In his book, Knowing God, he says this. He's using the example of a man who's in the Amazon, who's never left his city or who's never left his jungle and plopping him down in the middle of uh, London, Trafalgar Square. So think New York City and Times Square. He says this. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him, as one who knew nothing in English or England, to fend for himself. 
So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place. And life in it is in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder throughout life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Those are stirring and provocative words by J.I. Packer. Paul in Ephesians wants you to know this God. He wants you to know your purposes. Your purpose in this life and his purposes in your life. And that's what he's been doing uh, since since the beginning of chapter 1. He's taking us through all these great spiritual realities that have occurred because of the redemption that has happened in the Christian's life. And now he's going through them and he's going to see, he wants to show two results, at least two results from this new change in the Christian's life. Uh, So the sermon head is this. Two new affections of God's blood-bought people. Two new affections of God's blood-bought people. Affection number one. A love for the saints. A love for the saints. Affection number one. Look at verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. Uh, Just notice the first phrase there in verse 15. For this reason. So on the heels of the longest sentence in the New Testament. Verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence in the Greek. On the heels of this long sentence where he's exalting in God. And all the spiritual blessings that have occurred from God's plan from all time. He's diving into how this works out in the believer's life. So just as a reminder of all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ, that's what he's referring to. He reminds uh, or he tells us in in verses 3 to 14 that we are chosen, that we are predestined, and that now because of this we are now holy and blameless. We've been adopted as sons of God, making God our Father. We've been redeemed, which we talked about two or three Sundays ago, which means to be released by payment. We've been given an inheritance. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He's accomplished all these things through the redemption, through the blood payment of Jesus on the cross. All of our sins are forgiven. And now we understand the mystery of his will. The plan that he's been creating from before the foundations of this world. He's been given us the, he's given us the Holy Spirit, the down payments of our faith. The guarantee that God's promises will never leave us. And we are sealed in him. We are stamped by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, for this reason... I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Paul has not seen this, 
But Paul has heard about this. If you look at Paul in Acts, you notice that a lot of gospel ministry wasn't occurring because of the work of Paul, but it was going on there even without him. But we know that he's not there and he's not the one that's doing a lot of this work because we can look in, in, uh, uh, and knowing that he's only heard about this, flip over to chapter 3 of Ephesians. Paul is writing from jail. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So somewhere in some Roman jail in Asia Minor or in Europe, Paul has heard of the ongoing spirit-empowered work of the Ephesian church or the Ephesian churches. And particularly, he's calling out the love that they have for all the saints. Can you imagine just Paul sitting there in a jail cell and hearing of the robust, ongoing love that Christians have for one another in this Ephesian church or perhaps different churches in the Ephesian area? This is a theme throughout Ephesians that often goes unnoticed. You can flip over to chapter 6, verse 23, the very way that he ends the letter. He says, peace, to be the bro- peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 says something similar. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that one of the fruits of the Spirit is love. So Paul really succinctly here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15 is saying that I've heard of your faith and the love that you have for all the saints. So here's the new affection, church, is the fact that these Christians were blood-bought by Christ on the cross. And now that they've been given the inheritance of the Holy Spirit, stamped and sealed by the Holy Spirit, now they have this love for the saints, this Christian love. And Paul's very clear here. He's saying that this is from their newfound faith. You see that in verse 15 there. And so in light of all this, in light of them looking at love for, the, love for one another, in light of them uh, and their, new, their newfound faith in Christ, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This new faith causes him to praise God and thanks and to petition God on behalf of these brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I started reading the scriptures. I'd see these phrases like, I do not cease to, um, what is, what did he say here? I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I'd read that and be like, are you just praying all the time for these Ephesian Christians? Just constant prayer. That's not what he means. What he's saying is that every time I am in prayer, every time I go before the Lord in prayer, I remember you. You have not been checked off of my prayer list. I am constantly praying for you when I pray. I used to believe odd things about this, and there's some weird, just odd explanations about texts like this. But I think that's what he's saying. In the time of prayer, he's thanking God for them and petitioning God on their behalf. And so we offer thanks to God for their faith and their love for the saints. Uh, When you are thankful for something, 
the first thing you want to do if, you, if, you're, if it brings you joy is to give thanks to God. So this morning I was thinking about that. I opened up the cereal cabinet and didn't see my beloved grape nuts. And my flesh wanted to be like, Katie, I told you, you know, but I was like, it's not stupid, Mark. Don't do that. It's not your wife's fault. It's your fault for not putting it on the list. That's the system we have. And so I, I looked and I, 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 I split open the cereal boxes. And in the back, I saw this box. I said, I hope that's greatness. I pulled it out. I said, greatness. I said, yes, thank you, God. Small picture, small example of what Paul is doing here. He's heard about the love for the saints. He's heard about their newfound faith. And he gives expression of gratitude to God. Giving thanks to God is what is natural for the Christian to do when they see something praiseworthy. And so their love is praiseworthy and so it gives thanks to God. This desire is a born-again affection. This is a new affection for the Christian. It's a new part of your new life in Christ to love all the saints. This is a distinctively Christian thing. And so two points of application for this in our first point here. Is one is, the, is, is to have joy with other Christians. To have joy with other Christians. You see all this through the Pauline epistles. In 2 Timothy 1.4 he says, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So part of Paul's joy, yes, he has enough in Christ. Yes, Christ is sufficient. But as we said over the summer, something is added to the joy of Paul when he is going to see Timothy. You are meant for Christian friendships is what I'm saying here, church. That is supposed to fill you with more joy. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.4. That I may be filled with joy so I may see you. Love produces this Christianly love among saints. And so it is a normal part of the Christian life to have love for other saints and to enjoy it. 3 John 1.4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. When you love Christians, part of your joy is is tied to loving other Christians. Secondly, we see this concern for other Christians. Uh, This is all throughout the book. Um, I need some Kleenex up here because I am sweating. Lindsay Parker, there's some right there. Dear sister, deacon of finance and deacon of Kleenex is for me. Thank you for serving in that way. Cal, is it it working? All right. right. Thank you, brother. Um, It's going to be a long sermon if I'm barely through the first point and I'm already dripping. Um, I've seen this time and time again in our church. When someone becomes a Christian here, um, they have this newfound love that is expressing joy with hanging out with other Christians, but it's also expressing concern for other Christians. And so what a joy it is to be really grafted into this church, to be seeing what's going on, to hear how Emily Stahl is dropping off groceries for Cynthia throughout the last year. Uh, I've been so encouraged by Madison, Madison Mosier. She's texted me a couple times after sermons and saying, Mark, can I have some more resources on Christians who are persecuted for their faith in other countries? That's, that's not, you did not muster that up yourself. Um, Emily, most, most young women in their lower 20s um, don't enjoy doing stuff like that. But you enjoy that because you have a loving and God-given concern for Cynthia. 
Madison, most young women in your age don't do something like that. Madison gets awkward and smiles when she feels awkward. Emery does the same thing. You guys should talk. Madison, Emery. Um, that's, that's God-given. That's new birth affections given to you by the Lord to care for um, persecuted church. And so you see here Paul in verses 15 and 16 saying, I give thanks to my God because of these new, new affections that you have, this new concern and this new joy you have for other Christians. Friends, the more you get involved in our church, the more you will start to love other Christians. That is just natural for the Christians. Now, I know it can be hard for some of us if you've ever been burned or you feel like you've loved someone and it felt like it wasn't reciprocated. But the pattern of the New Testament is, is to dive in and to love other Christians. And if you're burned, so be it. You have a Lord and you have a whole, other ch- a whole church that loves you. And Paul Tripp says this about love. He says, love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger. I praise God for how often I see that going on in this church. People loving others out of a joyful, uh, willful desire to serve them. That's, desire, that's affection number one. The second new affection is this, and this is where we spend most of our time, is a desire to know God. A desire to know God. In verses 17 to 19. Now, Paul tells them what he's praying for them. So he's told them, I'm praying for you. And now he goes in and tells tells them what he's praying for. That's what verses 17 and 19 are, the content of his prayer. So look at verse 17. He says, I'm praying for you that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So how does... Here's a question to ask here. How does praying relate to the the glory of God? So three times the refrain to the praise of his glory is mentioned in verses 3 to 14. And then he says here he's praying to the father of glory. And so one aspect of prayer is asking God to do only what he can do. And that's what Paul does here. I think that's the link to the praise of his glory you keep seeing in the first part of the chapter. So God gets the glory and we get the blessing. God's glory relates to prayer and that it relates to the praise of his glory because God can do something that is impossible for man to do. Thus the giver gets the credit and we praise him for that. Thus God gets more glory. Paul knows that only God can turn the lights on in the heart. And so he prays and asks God to do that. And God is the one who can answer the prayer. God is the one who, an, who does answer the prayer. And God is the one who receives the glory. And so he prays to the glorious triune God that he would reveal more of himself to them. And you see that he prays for a spirit or the spirit of wisdom. That God may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. One question that you might come to in the ESV, I believe the spirit is capitalized there, capital S, and other versions, the lowercase s. So is he praying for kind of more generic spiritual wisdom, or is he praying for the Holy Spirit of wisdom, kind of a new title for the Holy Spirit? I don't mean just to land in the middle just because it's easy, but I am landing in the middle here. I think the way 
maybe the best I can tell way to interpret this is that he's praying that they would have a Holy Spirit shaped wisdom about him. The reason I'm doing that is if you look back in verses 13 to 14, that's all about the Holy Spirit, the inheritance we've given. So on the heels of explaining the inheritance that we have because of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, he now prays for the spirit of wisdom in the same sentence, the same breath, he's mentioning the Father and the Son. And now he mentions the Spirit, the one who is active and doing the work and conforming us to Christ and sanctifying us. And this is spirit informed wisdom. You also see this in Colossians 1 chapter 9. So Paul writes there, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this. But you can have different degrees of the Holy Spirit. So it's not that you can lose the Holy Spirit. We know that because you're guaranteed to have the Holy Spirit with you for the rest of your life. But you can have greater degrees of the Holy Spirit. You can be more Holy Spirit filled. And therefore you can know more about God. Flip over to Ephesians 5 verse 18. Stamped with the Holy Spirit... But in some ways, you can be more spirit-filled. So look at Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Or technically, more literally it means, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is passive there. It's something the Spirit is doing to you. So one way to look at that would be, would be to have this Holy Spirit-informed wisdom. God's wisdom that he's lavished upon us by his grace. As verse 8 says, speaking about the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So Paul's prayer here so far is that they would be filled or that they would have uh, spiritual wisdom given to them by God's Holy Spirit. And then he prays that they would have also the spirit of wisdom, but also the spirit of revelation, as you see it there. Now flip over to chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. This is important stuff to understand the rest of the book. Spirit, Holy Spirit shaped wisdom, and now Holy Spirit given revelation. Look at chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. He says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed, there that word is again, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is the one who brings the revelation. You see that? It was made known to me by revelation on the road to Damascus. That's what Paul's saying there. And now I want, you, I want this to be revealed to you. More and more and more as it has been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul wants us to know these realities. And he knows that the only way that we can know these realities is that the eyes is if the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. And this is the enlightenment that comes from God. You see it there back in chapter 1. Seeing there that, that we see there that um, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Again, this is passive. Meaning, this is something that only God can do. 
We can pray and ask for it, but God is the only one who can enlighten the eyes of our hearts. We cannot do it ourselves. You cannot say to your heart, heart be enlightened, and all of a sudden it turns on. You cannot speak light into darkness. Only God can say, let there be light and anything happen. So as God is restoring humanity and reconciling all things to himself through Christ, these words of light and darkness continue just as they did in the creation of the world. So they do now with Christians who are new creations. You see that right there. That's what Paul is saying. He's drawing on Genesis chapter 1. I'm restoring all things to myself. And just as in the beginning, when I created the world, I spoke light into darkness. And so in darkened hearts, I am speaking light into them. And it's not just the initial light of the gospel. It's not just the moment of conversion or the moment of new birth. But it's a constant need for the Christian to depend on God to bring in the light. Yes, in some ways, think of it like a dimmer, right? Yes, the light's on. It's there. You're converted. Signed, sealed, delivered. Holy Spirit's there. But for that dimmer to even go up, for the lights, for these lights to go up, I have to do something to make these lights become as bright as they can. And so for the Christian to depend on God from the moment of their conversion to the moment of glory, they need to continue to ask God for more light. That's why Paul is praying this prayer for Christians. Christians have a constant need for God to keep bringing light and revelation. That's why we pray every Sunday that by the power of the Holy Spirit that, we would, that he would illuminate the text for us. Turn the lights on so that our hearts would be softened and hear and receive what God has to say in his word. So with our hearts, in order to see, so with our hearts, our emotions, our intellect, what we value, we need God to open our eyes continually. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul is talking to King Agrippa, He's recounting the moment of his conversion, the moment the lights went on for him of his heart. And he says this to King Agrippa. He's recounting his commission, Jesus' commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, I've been called to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This light and darkness is all throughout the scriptures. It's not just preaching the gospel, but it's what sustains the Christian in their faith. Uh, Those of you who are uh, at least 30 years old and older, uh, which for our church is like 10 of you, uh, you remember that song, um, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. That's a good song, right? Some of us, we kind of poo-poo on 90s uh, praise music. But that's a good song because... That, <laughs> why did I say that? <laughs> Sorry. Um, there's other words to, to, to explain what I just tried to explain. 
we look down on 90s praise music sometimes, but that's a really good song. Because only God can open the eyes of our hearts. Only God can enlighten the eyes of our hearts. And that's what Paul is saying there. But then he gets to the content of what he's saying. So he's saying, only God can do this, church. And here's what I'm praying specifically for. I want you to see and I want you to know these truths. Hope, inheritance, and God's power. I want you to know the hope. What is the hope to which he has called you? And this deals with their Christian walk. Chapter 4 makes this more clear. In chapter 4, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Hope for the Christian is rooted in, their, in God's calling on their lives. To not walk in darkness, but to walk in light. And we'll see that more in chapter 4 as he moves from more uh, of theology to, to living. Secondly, look at the second thing he prays for. He prays that they would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, different theologians talk about, is this God's inheritance or is it, is it our inheritance? Is God receiving here or are we receiving? Both are used in the Old Testament. It's more common to see uh, God's people, Israel, be his inheritance and one day the nations be his inheritance. But in the New Testament, it's more common to see the inheritance related to what we receive as Christians. And I think because of what proceeds in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he's mainly talking about our inheritance, what, what we receive. So he's praying that our eyes may be open to see our heart, what we value, what we love, what we count worthy in this world or in this life. That we might understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. How God has bestowed all those spiritual blessings in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, onto the Christian. And thirdly, he prays for God's power. He said, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to his great might? Look at all those words that relate to power and bigness. Immeasurable. You can't measure it. Greatness. It is big and bigger than anything else. Of his power toward us who have faith or to us who believe according to his what? Great might. What is Paul trying to say? Well, he says it in the next, uh, we're going to read it because it's so good. I wish in some ways I'm like, I just want to keep going, but we'll do that next time. Look at verse 20 to 23. This is the power he's talking about. Check out this power that he says is in you and that he says, you know a little bit, but I want you to know more and more and more. He says this. This is the power that he worked in verse 20 in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is saying to me and to you, to the Christians throughout all the ages, that the same power that took a lifeless body, the Lord Jesus, and resurrected from the dead, and then took him and then ascended him to the right hand of the Father, is in us. And we can know more more and more of that power. 
Well, friends, that's exactly what he's saying. And so even right now, as I'm preaching this, I'm like, really, Lord? And you're sitting there like, that's a lot of power. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, you can have more and more understanding of this immeasurable greatness of his power, which again, we'll get to, into more and more next week. God is omnipotent. God is powerful. His powerful is limitless. And what's key in all of this, and why I thought to open up with J.I. Packer and knowing God, is that this is what it means to know God. This is what it means to have God knowledge. Do you see how knowledge of God is meant to make you more hopeful? How the purposes of knowing God are meant to help you see how rich a treasure you possess. And how the knowledge of God is meant to, for you to behold the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power that disarmed the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. And the same power that ascended the Lord to the right hand of the Father. And gave him dominion over every name. Now and in the age to come. This powerful Christ is ahead over all things. And we can know this in varying degrees. It can be true of us, right? We're sealed in the Holy Spirit. But there are degrees of knowing this more and more. You see, his church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And he wants to keep filling his church with his knowledge, with knowing him. One of the theologians I've been shaped by is a Scottish man by by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And he wrote a little book, I don't remember if it's about 20 pages, called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So anytime I'm counseling someone, someone who is uh, dealing with envy or someone who's dealing with lust, someone dealing with greed, their inclination and my inclination is to set up some rules, some boundaries for their lives. And those aren't wrong. Boundaries are good. They help us. In our moments of weakness especially. But in Chalmers' day, he saw this idea of moralism continuing to take over the church. Like, let's have more rules so that we can be more holy. So that we can have more knowledge. So that we can not be out of step with God and his commands. But Chalmers looked into uh, 19th century uh, uh, Scottish church. He said, that's not the answer. That's not what the scripture teaches. If you want to stop walking in lawlessness, if you want to stop sinning, stop transgressing against God, you need a higher love. You need something that is so lovely that it pushes out those bad desires. You need a new affection. And so Chalmers says this in his book. He says, I think it's an address. He says this, the love of the world cannot be expunged By a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. Meaning you can't just say sin bad, sin bad, (laughs) sin is bad. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. Let me read that again. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. 
but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. So as we see in the book of Ephesians, in chapters 4, 5, and 6 specifically, he's calling them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But the ability to walk, the know-how to walk rightly in this world as a Christian is rooted in chapters 1 through 3. Knowing this God, knowing the spiritual blessings. And then you have the power, the ability to walk. It's not just command, command, command. I remember one of the first Bible verses that I was ever taught, because I had a bad mouth, was Ephesians 4.29. Anyone else? Maybe someone's mom just shouted that to them all the time. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, right? And so that's what I would say. Oh, don't say that. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your your mouth. And that worked in part. But I wish it would have been rooted in deep theology of what that is pointing to. That's building up the church, Mark. This is the mystery of God revealed. And now you can build others up with your tongue. So that's what he's going to do. Three, to, to close, three tendencies in the church when it comes to the knowledge of God. Three tendencies in the church when it comes to the knowledge of God. And we'll be talking more about this in the coming months. Tendency number one is to have a high value of affection, but low value of doctrine. A high value of affection for God, but a low value of doctrine. A lot of zeal and a little doctrine. This has been a problem for the church throughout the ages, and I think it's specifically a problem in the 21st century and even in the late 20th century. Maybe people think doctrine is boring, doctrine is is dry, but if someone is zealous, someone raises their hands in worship, someone shares the gospel, someone prays a certain way, someone talks like this earnestly, oh, that's godliness. That's not the case, church. We cannot be a church that values affection over doctrine. They're not in combat with one another. You can look more at the second great awakening for this, where zeal and signs of God's work were valued over doctrine. And if you want to do a study, read, uh, you can do, do a contrast between the second great awakening and its fruits and the first great awakening and its fruits. First great awakening found on good, right preaching. Much more lasting fruit. Second great awakening, all kinds of weird stuff started to happen. Good fruit, but also a lot of bad fruit. And we need to be careful of this. I think in our own denomination, uh, this might be something we're known for in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think less and less so these days, but in the past, a lot of zeal. Let's get the gospel out there. We're Matthew 28, 19 to 20 denomination without much doctrine. And I think that that will have bad fruit in the long run. I remember in college ministry, there was a guy named Todd. He also went by the nickname Sky. Lindsay was in college ministry with me. We were all there at church and uh, he, Saturday night, he came back in. We was like, hey man, Todd, how's it going? And Todd was at a concert. He was at a Gwen Stefani concert. 
or maybe she was part of No Doubt at the time. And he zones there. He says, oh, man, it was awesome. I was just sitting there listening to her sing, and I was just worshiping God. And we're all sitting there. I'm like, Todd, what are you talking about? Did you smoke something at the Gwen Stefani concert? You can't worship God when you're listening to uh, that Spiderweb song. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Or I'm just a girl. But in Todd's mind, some emotive feeling was linked with worshiping. And that is very dangerous, Christian. If you believe, if you link emotions to doctrine, or if you link emotions without any kind of doctrinal base, that is dangerous for your faith. So we need to be careful about this and the implications of this in the church. All right, second tendency of the church is to have a high value of doctrine and a low value of affection. A high value of doctrine, a low value of affection. Now, I don't know what this, if, if there's a direct connection to uh, mainline Protestantism or not. I'm not sure what happened first, low affection or low doctrine, whatever it happened. I think it goes both ways. Uh, but this is dangerous to the church. And I think that uh, I've been both, guys. I'm, I've been high value of affection, low value of doctrine in my life. And I've been high value of doctrine, low value of affection. None of us are completely balanced here. But the Lord convicted me of this uh, a few months ago. I was in my office with uh, Zamir and Josiah. And for some reason we were talking about Christian martyrs. And we talked about a man named John Chow who was killed on November 17th, 2018 by the Sintelis when he tried to make contact with them and proclaim the gospel to them. Now I don't know, I don't want to talk about his missionary strategy. That's not the point. That's for a different day. But the Lord convicted me and how ugly my heart was when I was so quickly, when I heard about his martyrdom, uh, reflecting on it uh, a year and a half ago, I so quickly jumped to question his wisdom rather than grieve his loss and thank God for his zeal. So Zamir, Josiah and I were sitting on the couch and the Lord convicted me that I am just sitting here in my office looking at doctrine and meanwhile this guy with zeal, wanting to know these people who are in darkness without any gospel light, without any hope unless someone preaches a gospel to them, and God moves through that preaching. He was killed for his faith. And here I am in my comfy office, in some ways just judging him without putting words to it. And the Lord broke me of my pride and how I thought, man, I wonder if he would have was taught this or that. But, but I have things to learn from John Chow. It can be so subtle and so easily, brothers and sisters, especially if you are in a seminary context, this is dangerous stuff to your soul. Gresham Macon said this in his book on Christianity and liberalism. He says, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust him. The greater our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. So you want to know if you're on the good track? You want to know if you're knowing God well? Is your doctrine leading to good affections? Leading to joy in your faith? The last tendency of the church before we close is what I call new knowledge. New knowledge. This one is tricky. Now this one has always been the biggest danger for the church because the other two, I think many of us just kind of ebb and flow on that spectrum. But this is dangerous. It is subtle, it is deceptive, and it ends horribly. 
Colossians perhaps speaks to this dangerous tendency more than any other epistle. Colossians 1 speaks to the, says that um, this will not help you in a world that tells you to make God out of your own image. So, for instance, Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He's talking to the church at Colossae and he says this to them. Someone's going to try to take you captive by philosophy and by vain deceit. And this is going to be according to human tradition, not biblical wisdom. This is according to the elemental spirits of the world. And this is not according to Christ. Meaning, it's so subtle that it might not come into your church and say, this is anti-Christ. But it is not in conjunction with Jesus Christ and his teaching. And church, we need to be aware of this. This gives lip service to Christianity and to Christ. And the same breath says, yeah, but. I remember in a different context at my former church, I was was trying to help this woman understand some of her circumstances. I was trying to encourage her with the gospel. And not in my flesh, but in the spirit. I was like, man, that was good what I just said. That must have been like Holy Spirit. It was like two minutes just talking to her. And she says, yeah, but. And she went on. She had no care for what I just said. This happens all the time in the church. And we have to be careful. And particularly it happens when we try to help people. And so I've seen it time and time again. Christ, yeah, Christ is sufficient. But what you really need to do is you need to drill down into your past. You need to understand how anthropologically you are made now. That might be helpful. I've met with a counselor before. My wife and I did for a year. It was great. We referred the same counselor to many of you. But without ending in Christ and in the middle and the beginning, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Without understanding that you now have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. That counsel will subtly lead you down a place of hopelessness. You will be an inward spiral of thinking about yourself. And then you will start to blame others for your conditions. So I was walking with Cal Stack the other day. And I kind of sidestepped a manhole. Some of you know. When I was 17, I fell in a manhole. Just half of me. It hurt. It was embarrassing. And so oftentimes when I'm... It's fine to laugh. I'm, see? You are like, oh, is Mark okay about the manhole? That's what I'm trying to say. I'm fine about the manhole. I don't have manhole trauma. I do actually a little bit, but that's okay. So if Cal said to me, Mark, Mark, watch out, watch out. There's a manhole there. You okay? I know you fell in a manhole when you're 17. It's okay. Let's just go around it. He's going to make that problem huge in my life. And I'll be so scared to even go in the street because there's a manhole out in the street. And I might stumble upon one day and fall in again. I don't need that kind of help. That's not helpful. And if you know Cal, he would never do that. I need to know that, Mark, statistically speaking, that's never going to happen in your life again. You're going to be okay. Just walk over the manhole. And so that's what I do. The point is this. 
And we'll go through on it because Ephesians has a lot about counseling and helping us being conformed to the image of Christ. The point is this. True knowledge of God. True knowledge of Christ is all you need in this life that pertains to life and godliness. And any other thing needs to help you get to that point. If it falls short, it's not helpful. So Christian, where do you fall in all these things? three things. Do you value affection over doctrine? Do you value doctrine over affection? Are you tempted by this kind of new knowledge, something better and more impressive than the gospel? None of us are perfectly balanced here. All of us need to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ and more and more renewed by the transformation of our mind. In conclusion, J.I. Packer says this, How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God. Leading to prayer and praise to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have been richly blessed in the beloved We have been redeemed. We've been given an inheritance that is unfading and perishable and kept in heaven for us. And so because of that, because we are sinners worthy of wrath and condemnation, and yet you saved us by your grace at an appointed time, we offer you praise and we glorify your magnificent name. Oh God, we pray for any of those in this room that don't know you. We pray that you would reveal to them your love displayed on the cross of Christ, that you would save them even today, O Lord, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.